Father, as we remain here, please open your word to us. Please open our eyes to see what is true, what our Lord Jesus lays before us, and open our hearts to love him. In Jesus' name, amen. Saeem, this mic sounds very hot. Could you uh, turn me down a little bit here? <laughs> Thanks. Is that better? All right. Um, so uh, we're going to stay in John chapter 16, and we're going to stay on that same theme that Sarah um, raised for us this morning. I, as she said, just finished reading Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix uh, for the second time, book five in the uh, seven-book series. Uh, in my view, it's probably the worst book of the seven. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay, or maybe I should say the least good, uh, because I do think they're all pretty amazing, creative, well-told stories. Uh, but book five is the real low point in Harry's story, um, because it comes after Lord Voldemort has returned to power, but before anybody in the wizarding world believes Harry that he's returned. Harry finds himself as the only living eyewitness who's not a death eater, not an evil wizard on Voldemort's side. Um, and uh, so Harry is isolated from all his friends and community by what he's seen. And, uh, and meanwhile, Harry's happy world at Hogwarts School for Wizardry falls apart. Um, if you've read the story and you remember it, or if you've seen the movie, book five is the one that contains Dolores Umbridge, that spiteful, vindictive sociopath who is promoted by the Ministry of Magic to the position of Hogwarts High Inquisitor and is really one of the worst people ever committed to print. Um, Harry is physically tortured by Umbridge in an attempt to force him to change his story, but he stands firm. And by the end of book five, Harry is vindicated, and Umbridge is satisfyingly humiliated and sent packing. So um, the Order of the Phoenix has these strong overarching themes of grief and truth. Harry has many reasons for grief in the book, which I won't list out for you because Miriam hasn't read it yet. Um, but Harry knows a grievous truth at the beginning of the story, and his allegiance to that truth isolates him, and it also adds greatly to his own grief. But like it or not, Harry cannot abandon the truth, and he refuses to abandon the truth despite immense pressure to do so. At the end of the story, Harry is rewarded with more truth. There's a greater revelation of what's going on, and which somewhat eases his grief. So we've got these patterns of grief and truth are really strong in that book. Um, and those are the patterns that we find in John chapter 16. So I want to explore those patterns with you today. Grief and truth. Uh, it's the way that uh, truth can cause grief and then the way that truth answers grief. Uh, like it or not, we cannot and must not ever give up on the truth because the truth will win in the end. So uh, grab your Bibles. Black Bibles in the uh, pews in front of you. Uh, we find page 902, and it's John's Gospel, chapter 16, looking at the first 15 verses. Page 902, John 16. So first we'll talk about uh, how truth can cause grief. Second, how truth answers grief. And then finally, why the side of truth will always be the winning side. So first, truth can sometimes cause grief. This is the message of John 16, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you 
will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So this sounds in their ears as a clear warning, a siren warning them that trouble is coming. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you. And by that, he means his teaching about the hatred of the world at the end of chapter 15. We heard about that last Sunday. So because of their decision to follow Jesus, they will meet with the world's scorn, rejection, and opposition. Here, at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus clarifies the form that that opposition is going to take. He says it will mean excommunication from the synagogue and then even murder. Both very severe, painful experiences. And they will come to the disciples because they have believed and stood firm in the truth. And this is not going to be a small deal, but a big deal. Jesus sees the need to warn them ahead of time because he's concerned in verse 1 that some of these men, even the 11 faithful apostles, might fall away. In other words, he's concerned that they might give up on their belief, on the stand they have taken for the truth, after everything they've seen because of the immense pressure and the pain of persecution. So Jesus warns them and also reassures them, opposition and rejection are coming. Be ready. And Jesus' warning and his prediction came true in their lives almost immediately. Jesus himself went to the cross under the heavy blows of hatred, and after he rose and ascended, that same hatred came after his followers. They were excommunicated from the synagogues, all of them, within just a few years. And very soon, Stephen was going to become the first martyr. They stoned him to death for his faith in Jesus. Saul, who watched this happen, rejoiced that he was among the group who was doing the work of God. The first Christians were, by all accounts, a peaceable and completely nonviolent people, but that didn't stop plenty of violence being committed against them. Of the 11 faithful apostles, we understand that 10 of them met a grisly end, stoned, burned, fed to the lions, or crucified upside down. Only John, tradition says, died of old age and natural causes, but only after he was miraculously saved from being thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Suffice it to say, the warnings of Jesus came to pass for all of those first 11 and for many, many millions of followers since. Today, standing up and saying that Jesus is the Son of God can be a death sentence in Yemen or Pakistan or Somalia and a dozen other countries. It means almost certain imprisonment in a concentration camp in North Korea, and it can get you thrown out of India, China, or Turkey. The organization Open Doors that tracks trends of Christian persecution reports that 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith last year, which is about one every two hours. So the warnings of Jesus keep coming true. And as Jesus says in John 16, this is no kind of evidence that Christians are wrong, quite the opposite. It's pretty compelling evidence that we're right, that we stand in the truth. Jesus says in verse 3, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So think about it. I'm sure you yourselves know people that you disagree with about some pretty important things. Take, for example, the community of flat earthers in this country. 
Think about it, though. Does their stubborn insistence that the earth is flat arouse in you a murderous hatred? No, it does not. You just roll your eyes and you let them be, right? And the world is, in general, happy to roll its eyes and let very bad ideas be. Hinduism and the caste system, yeah, you can believe that if you like. Reincarnation and nirvana, no problem. Yoga and praying to the sun god, oh, that's just fine. Crystals and palm reading and summoning the dead, go right ahead. But Jesus, oh no, not Jesus. Anything but Jesus. Go be a hippie or a druggie or a sun worshiper, but don't be a Christian. Why the special treatment? Why the special hatred? 5,621 people did not die last year for believing the earth was flat. My answer to this won't surprise you, but I challenge you to come up with a better one. The reason that this is the only belief that's so widely hated and persecuted is because it's the only one that's true. We'll tolerate any kind of lie, but we won't tolerate the truth. And so, as Jesus says in John 16, opposition is not evidence that you are wrong. It's evidence that you are right. But it is nonetheless painful. Be ready. Thankfully, in this country, there's freedom of religion. And none of us are risking in our lives by being here this morning. But you still do have to suffer from friends, family, and co-workers hating what you believe. They might not say it to your face, but they say it with their face. You and your boyfriend aren't going to move in together before you get married? You believe that those fables written in an ancient book are actually true? You won't watch this movie with us for what reason again? Tell me again why you can't come into work on a Sunday. In some of our situations, we face an isolation that's a form of excommunication. Our faith puts us outside of a community to which we could otherwise belong. And there's real pain in that. If you're standing on the truth of Jesus, then I expect it has already caused you some kind of grief. But now second, that same truth also answers that grief. And I was struck as I studied this passage that the main comfort Jesus offers to his disciples here is the truth. The truth has, in a sense, caused the problem in the first place. But the truth is also his answer to the problem. So look at verse 6 again. Jesus is fully aware of the problem. Sorrow has filled your heart. And Jesus loves them and he cares about them. He wants to comfort them and respond to that sorrow. And the major content of his comfort, if you look at it, is truth. He says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Without my going, the Spirit won't come. And what does the Spirit do? He convicts the world of truth. And what's the final comfort in verse 13? That when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So I'll be honest with you, when I first opened up this passage again this week and read through it, ready to preach today, I initially wanted to preach that God comforts us with his own presence by coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus said earlier, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And, and he also said we will come to him and make our home with him. I was going to tell you that in that way of thinking, we deal with the rejection of the world on the strength of our acceptance by God. We lose human company and we gain God's company, which is way better. So we should all count that a win and be satisfied. 
But the more I studied this passage, the less I found that that was what Jesus is really saying here. This part is not mainly about love. It's not mainly about God's own presence. Good as that is, this part is about truth. It's mainly about truth. That's the word that just keeps showing up. Jesus is trying to comfort them, but the primary focus of that comfort is the truth. So let's hear again verses 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, there's some really great Trinitarian theology in these verses. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit united in divinity, sharing all things, testifying about one another, and glorifying one another. It's awesome, but that's all for another day. <laughs> because what I want to focus on today is Jesus' eagerness in these verses that the disciples know all the truth. Many, many wonderful things. Jesus causes us to imagine vast oceans of truth that would weigh the human mind down with an almost unbearable weight of glory. Jesus says there's so much more for you to know, more than your minds can now bear, but stick with me and I'll tell you everything. And for the intellectual seeker and the incurably curious mind, these are great promises. You are going to get what you are so hungry for. Your Lord desires that you know so much more, that you know everything. All that Jesus has received, and he wants to pass along just as soon as you can bear it. Jesus' words here shine a flashlight down the path ahead and reveal Christian discipleship to be a lifelong, even an eternal journey of discovery. Theological, philosophical, and scientific to understand all the deep questions of the world in every category. And to some of us, that in and of itself might be enough to make up for the loss of the world's friendship. In our literature, there are plenty of epic stories out there about people who leave everything behind and strike out on some voyage of discovery, risking death and terrible suffering for the one reason that they might know the truth. Are we going to join their number? Because that, Jesus says, is the shape of the Christian life. The further we journey down the difficult road of discipleship, the more we know the truth, the more we understand God and the way he made this world. Think about Peter and John and Paul. They were fishermen and simple folk. They set out on this difficult and dangerous journey. They started with only Jesus and everything he had taught them. They followed the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. They walked for years down a road of painful persecution that included beatings and stonings and bloody execution. They walked for years down this road of truth and love that Jesus says is the real path to enlightenment. And they emerged as some of the wisest men the world has ever known. They saw visions of angels, visions of heaven. They spoke about the distant future of this world. The letters of the New Testament are pure gold. Here is understanding. Listen to them. Don't listen to the pompous blowhards 
like Karl Marx and Immanuel Kant. What do they know? Sitting in their comfortable armchairs, philosophizing about the world. They know nothing. They have not taken one step down this road of discovery and illumination. They might have had high IQs, but in terms of actual wisdom and understanding, they did not take one step. They did not know Jesus. And Jesus is the first step. Every book of biblical wisdom insists the fear of the Lord is the beginning, not the end of wisdom. The people of God are the world's genuine students of the truth. And that truth is both rewarding and comforting. Now, I have the sense that most of the time, most of us view the truth not as a comforting thing, but as a cold and hard and unsympathetic thing. We sometimes talk about the bare truth as the cold, hard facts. And we caveat difficult statements we feel the need to say by starting, to be honest, or to tell you the truth, as if we expect that what comes next is going to be a gut punch and not a comfort. Sometimes we shy away from talking about difficult things altogether, like painful experiences in our lives or subjects where we fear we're not in the right. And we have conversational no-go areas with our close friends and family. And all of this is perhaps due to our view that the truth is a hard thing, a stern thing, not a soft thing. We know we might have to face it someday, just not today, please. But here, when Jesus talks about the truth, it's a comfort, not a bludgeon. It's healing, not harmful. He ministered to his disciples in their weakness and in their sorrow, using the truth, coupled with the promise of more truth. And I wonder if we shouldn't be comforting one another in our pain, using more often this tool of truth, by reminding each other again of the gospel, of who we are and what is true, and also reminding each other that more understanding is coming our way just as soon as we're ready to bear it. All right, so we've seen that the truth can cause grief and also that truth answers grief. Now, finally, the side of truth will always be the winning side. Stick with the truth, just like Harry Potter. Don't give up, and you will surely be vindicated. I want to come back up to verse 7, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When Jesus says the helper, we know that he means the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world. Let's dwell on that for a moment here. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world. That's a good promise. That is wonderful news. Convict does not mean judge or punish or condemn. Convict means change their minds. Convict means bring them to understanding that they were wrong and bring them to humble repentance and a different decision. Jesus says the job of the Holy Spirit is to change the world's mind on three points specifically, on sin and righteousness and judgment. 
which are big and important points. And on each one, the world has a wrong view about itself and a wrong view about Jesus that both need to be corrected. The representatives of the world throughout John's gospel are the Pharisees. So we're going to use them as an example for each point. But their example is generally followed by the wider world that rejects Jesus. So first, on the subject of sin, I'm wrong about my own sin when I ignore it, justify it, excuse it, or treat it as something unimportant. And the Pharisees did this routinely. They called other people sinners, which was in direct contradiction to what Jesus taught, that everyone is a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm wrong about Jesus when I don't believe him, as he says in verse 9, which is to accuse him of being a sinner, at least a liar, which the Pharisees did outright. In John 9, they say of Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner. Furthermore, not to believe in Jesus is in and of itself a sin, because the light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit convicts us and sets us right about sin. He teaches us that we are all sinners and our sin is a big deal. Jesus is the only sinless one. He came down to rescue us from sin. That's the first essential conviction of Christianity. Second is about righteousness. Jesus said in verse 10 that it's because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness, it means the right way to live. Living the human life in the good and just way that God designed it to be. And we are wrong about ourselves if we think we're already doing this. Just like the Pharisees who were self-righteous and justified in their own eyes. At the same time, they were wrong about Jesus by declaring his lifestyle unrighteous and condemning him to death. So Jesus going to the Father refers to his resurrection from death and his ascension into heaven, both of which vindicated that he was actually the one who was right about righteousness. His life was pleasing to God, and he could show the way of righteousness to other people. Jesus' departure into heaven left a hole behind that the Holy Spirit now fills, the role of teacher. The Holy Spirit now convicts us of righteousness, that we do not naturally live to please God, but we can learn to live to please God by following Jesus. And then finally, there's the convic conviction about judgment. And this word for judgment is strongly negative. It means accusation or condemnation. We are wrong about ourselves when we think we won't be judged, never brought to account for our sins, either because we don't deserve it or because there's no righteous judge at all. The Pharisees, of course, felt very secure in their high status as Abraham's descendants and were sure no judgment was going to come to them. But Jesus taught otherwise, and for it they condemned him to crucifixion, wrongly deciding the Son of God was worthy of judgment. But there was another player in this game, wasn't there? Satan who Jesus calls, in verse 11, the ruler of this world. Jesus died on the cross not to condemn the Pharisees and others who put him there, but to save them, and instead to condemn his true enemy, Satan. On the cross, Jesus bled and died, but the real fatal blow was dealt to his enemy, Satan. Satan, who showed his true wickedness and depravity in orchestrating the act, unmasked himself to reveal his unspeakably repulsive face. 
For all his talk of individual autonomy and freedom, the real fire in his belly was a vicious hatred of God. Indeed, of all that was good and true and just and beautiful, Satan's act of deicide is eternally condemned. Not just by God, but by any decent, rational person. And the Spirit convicts us all through the cross that judgment is surely coming to all of us as it came to Jesus. But all may now be spared because of the death of Jesus. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Holy Spirit has convicted me. And I repented with tears and turned around. And he has convicted you too, most if not all of you, and brought you to new life. And in his work of convicting the world, he's really doing quite a good job so far. More than two billion around this planet convicted so far. From a start of just 11, the truth is winning. The truth is gaining ground. Stick with the truth and don't give up. And someday soon the whole world will be our friends united in this truth. If the initial problem with the truth of Jesus is that so few people believed it or knew about it and it put you in a vanishingly small and persecuted club, then the good news is that that same truth is now in the process of reuniting humanity around itself until that small club is the only club. And the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment reunites all humanity into one family in a way that has never been seen before on the earth. Truth wins. God wins. And God wins effortlessly. The Spirit is convicting the world inexorably. Winning souls to the praise and glory of Jesus out of death and judgment because that is what the Spirit has power to do. As our God plays his hand of cards onto the table, he does it not as the anxious gambler in the Vegas casino who's just staked his mortgage on the next turn. Our God plays cards as a father playing against his four-year-old child with the perfect cool composure of someone who knows he cannot lose and can win with his eyes closed. And the truth is, God doesn't actually want to beat you. He wants to let you win if you will acknowledge that he is father and cannot be beaten. When all is said and done, the truth is our friend and our very good friend. The truth may cause us grief temporarily, but it is also our chief comfort. And in the end, when truth wins, the servants of truth will win with it. Amen.